Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You know what? I can't deal with it. I can't deal with comparing myself with the world. And it's you know, it sort of goes back to what you were saying, you know, do I research a lot? Do I watch everything? And that's sort of what stops me a bit because I'm sort of thinking just maybe just don't compare yourself too much. Just watch things that inspire you, but then just also try and find your moment where you're just with yourself and you try and do something that you like, right? And not thinking too much about what the others are doing. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to producer Thibaut Travers. Perfect. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all-round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. Balancing Acts is now made in association with The Comedy Crowd, who are a website and community that support independent comedy creators such as myself. I have a Comedy Crowd short, which is a a two-minute video, one of my characters on their website. They showcase the best new videos on Comedy Crowd TV, which is comedycrowdtv.com, and across media platforms, so do go and check them out. So Thibaut is a producer of short films, And he's currently developing his first feature film as a producer. He's worked with organizations including Creative England, Canal Plus and the BFI. And he runs his production company, Sweet Dough. This is a really insightful conversation. I haven't had many producers on the podcast. So it was great to pick Tebow's brains to talk to him about all things production wise. But of course, we kick things off talking about The Last Dance because... That is the water cooler Netflix moment right now, isn't it? I think it's it's kind of like it's between that and obviously normal people on uh, BBC iPlayer. Tiger King. Does he? Does anyone even remember what that is anymore? That was like it was like years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. But we, anyway, we talk about the Last Dance and whether MJ's mentality is transferable to uh, to a creative career. You know, having that kind of mindset. And uh, Tebow talks about how a director is kind of like the equivalent of MJ of the production world and the producer is the team manager. And then we also go in a bit deeper and talk about what it means to kind of work in a, in a team. Uh, Tebow breaks down his journey into filmmaking and how he became a producer. 
And he talks about why it's so important to work with people he gets on well with and he connects with on a creative level. He discusses why it's so important for a director to have a producer and how they can help shape the project and film and why it's essential to give the right type of feedback to to writers and directors and also why it's important for writers and directors to receive the feedback in the right way and uh, respond accordingly. Tebow breaks down the process of applying and receiving funding for his uh, various film projects with the likes of BFI and Creative England and talks about the benefits of the funding application process. He explains the balance between working in corporate jobs, sort of corporate shoots, and then reinvesting that money to produce short films and, you know, passion projects. He talks about the decision making that goes into short film selections at festivals, and he breaks down the type of submission strategy you could perhaps implement for your first short film. We discuss why it's a good idea to release your short films on uh, bigger online platforms, if possible, rather than your own channel. That is, you know, if you have if you have sort of fewer subscribers, if you've got millions, then obviously release it on that. And we talk about why it's not the right move necessarily to buy views for your short. And very importantly, maybe I should have said this earlier on, uh, Tebow defines what the actual role of a producer is, because it can vary from TV to film and advertising and commercial and, and all that sort of stuff. So we talk about that. And uh, Tebow also explains how the role of the producer uh, has affected his, his his mental health, but why it's important for the producer to sort of be the captain of the ship and to, to continue with a steady eddy approach. And he also explains how he tries to have a balanced approach to life. We've got to obviously get the word balance in there. Every time, every time a guest says the word balance, they are paid um, 5p by me, so... So it's, it's it's essential. So you know they could be they could be clocking up a fair bit of, fair bit of wonga by the end of by the end of the interview. We also talk about why it's important to have time off and it's essential to work towards deadlines. We discuss the idea of being a victim of guilt or even feeling guilty for feeling guilty. Tebow talks about the importance of having role models, but also understanding how the people that you aspire to were once also beginners starting out. And, um, and why you should avoid comparisons on social media and beyond. There is loads here. This is a really great conversation. If you're a filmmaker, if you're working in, in filmmaking in any capacity or you're an aspiring short film director or writer, producer, uh, then this is a great conversation to listen to. And just before we kick off, I, I don't know why I always leave it to the end of the podcast because, you know, probably everyone tunes out after the interview but if you are enjoying these conversations i would uh, urge you please to leave a review on the itunes podcast thingy and uh, and and rate us because it really helps us get up the the apple algorithm you know and you know the more really what it comes down to it sort of strokes my ego you know the more that i the more that i can feel your appreciation the more i'm just going to continue to do this and yeah it was it basically it's all about me really so you're just helping me that's that's what it comes down to so thanks for that okay without further ado over to Tebow Perfect. have you been watching the last dance yeah man I finished it last night so did I Whoopses. oh my god it's good what did you what did you think what did you what did you make of MJ? Well, yeah. 
I, I, I mean, I got a lot of respect for the guy. You know, he was just like heads and shoulders above everyone ability-wise. Yeah. He just wanted to win. It was just like yeah. a, just a, a winning mentality. And really? yeah, all right. He, you know, he had to, he was a bit of an asshole at times, but it was all for yeah. the greater good. It was all for like the greater good of winning uh, is the way that I, I look at it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the greater good, like his greater good, right? Let's, let's, let's put it this way. But, you know, it, it, did, it did impact everyone else. But, you know, it was, it, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, like the Bulls never, haven't won a championship since he left. So, That's you fine. know, a lot of and those one players... one wasn't there in the middle. They didn't win it either. So it's just like, yeah. Exactly. So, you yeah. know, those players can all look back on their career and they've got championship rings that they might not have had if he didn't, you know, if he wasn't such a workhorse on them. Well, yeah, I think that's that's what I really enjoyed about the series. I mean, I, I do have, you know, sort of reservations about about the format and the timeline. I felt, I don't know, it was a bit confusing sometimes. Um, and I'm not a big basketball fan, so it took me a bit to sort of like understand just the NBA concept and stuff. But, you know, that's yeah. very personal. Um, but I, th- I, th- I think like the aspect that I really, really enjoyed about it was how that mentality of winning not only like can push someone to their utter limits but it can also affect the surrounding it's it's contagious and it just forces you the teammates to do things that they never thought they 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 never thought they could have done you know and i think that's really like that's something there's something to take about it about what a team really means it's not just you know i I know it sounds really like and you hear that in, in football it's like oh yeah it's not me it's a team effort and stuff but i feel like it's it's unusual to actually see documents that really give you that insight of this is how a team works. There's, there, there's, there's got, there has to be a leader sometimes. And this is how a leader works. There, there's someone who really wanted so hard that they're prepared to push you further than you thought you could go. You know, and I, it's, I found that aspect of the series really inspiring. Um, so do you think like his, um, his like winning mentality and mindset, do you think that is transferable to a creative career? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's transferable to any any sort of, you know, to anything really. I mean, it, it, you, you can, you know, even to your your sort of family bubble. I mean, in a way, like if you want something hard enough, you can just just uh, inspire other people to just work for, for it or or try harder, you know. So, yeah, I think as far as I'm, my experience goes, you know, like uh, in the film industry <clears throat> and working as a producer who in a way is kind of like, you know, with a director, like a team leader because you put together a team. I mean, that'd be more like, a, you know, comparable to like a team manager and then the director could be like a sort of Michael Jordan-ish kind of figure if you had to you know, yeah. sort of do a metaphor. But, but I think, yeah, you know, you, need, you, you want to have a director on set that not only has an unshakable belief in what they're doing, but that can also transmit that inspiration to, to their teammates and say, yeah. you know, this is what we're doing. And I, and I know you can do it. And I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the will, the, you know, the, the will to, to go so hard and push yourself way harder than you thought you could. And it's, you know, you, you see that on set a lot, you know, people like finishing, you know, the last day of a feature and, and, you know, everyone's exhausted. Like, I never thought I could have done this. And, you know, there's, there's someone that's inspired that. And I think a director and the first AD, you know, like uh, that's getting a bit technical to, to film sets, but. First assistant directors, they also like contribute to that a lot. And I know that for a fact because that's, that's how it started. And I know this, this is something that you can, you know, you, you sort of inspire 
um, just like energy, basically. That's, that's all you're here for when you're first AD. You want to inspire people to sort of like, come on, guys, we're going to do it. You know, it's, mm. it's that sort of like, yeah, like a sort of a team huddle kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I, I can definitely translate that to the, to the creative world, just to answer your question. Yeah, that makes sense. So, all right, so just to, just to rewind a bit, so you you run um, Sweet Dough, a film production company. Yeah. And how long have you been running the company for? And and how did you actually? I'll, I'll ask you first. How did you get into the industry? And then how did you end up getting to a point where you you set up your own production company? So okay, so so I started I started in sort of like you know creative industry with with big and in, you know inverted commas. I quite quite young when I was about twelve. And my best mate and I, we found a dictaphone in, in my house and we started recording ourselves just being silly and doing like comedy sketches. It was very, it was, it was shit, you know, I mean, we were 12. But, uh, but we had a lot of fun and definitely kept us occupied for, for a long time. And we would just listen to it and, you know, it, it wasn't really edited. So we would just re-listened to ourselves and it was great. And then one winter we were getting bored over Christmas at my dad's place and we found his camcorder. He had like a tape camera. Um, and that was like probably in like 99. Um, and we basically shot a short film over, over the course of that, that, that sort of like New Year's Eve. Uh, it was an action short film, which obviously was just three of us. It was myself being, you know, the actor and producer. I didn't know what producer meant, but because it was in my house, it felt logical that I should be the producer. I have no idea. Oh, it was my dad's camera. And my mate was the director, and he was like a really, really creative guy. He always had loads of ideas, and he was definitely leading the, the enterprise. And then my cousin just happened to be there, uh, and he, you know, we needed another actor because it was, you know, it couldn't always be me. So he ended up, ended up being the baddie. And we had loads, you know, I was into BB guns back then, and, you know, fake blood, and it was so fun. It was so, so great. Uh, and then we edited that and made a film out of it. And we showed it, we just showed it to some friends at school, like in January. And everybody loved it so much. And the teachers who saw it and was like, oh my God, this is so great. And they, they then organized a screening in the whole school. Uh, and it was really like, you know, we weren't, was so not prepared for this kind of reception. And I was really shy, actually. I was quite embarrassed, to be honest. I didn't, didn't really, you know, enjoy that, that moment. Um, and, and yeah, it sort of went on, you know, after that, like everybody came to us and said, oh my God, you know, if you're doing it again, just use us. So we ended up doing a sequel of that action film. So the film was called The Mission. And then we did The Mission 2. And that was a feature, believe it or not. We did a feature film, like a 60 minute film, which was really boring, <laughs> really long and intricate. Um, and, you know, everyone in our school was sort of taking part. So that's kind of like how I started, but I never thought that was going to be like my job. And I, my studies were, you know, I studied business. And so I didn't, didn't go to film school. I didn't go to film school. It, that was just like on the back of my mind and something that I did for fun. And, um, and then my dad gave me an opportunity to actually make like a corporate for, he's a, he's a doctor. And uh, he, gave, he knew I was, you know, filmmaker and he, he, he wanted to give DVDs to his patients um, to help them sort of recover from operations. So he asked me, oh, do you fancy doing it? I'll give you like 500 euros. And I was like, 500 euros, I'm in. So, so my mate and I sort of like, you know, decided to make that film for him. And we did it so well that, you know, he asked us to do a few others. And then one of his colleagues asked us to do a few others. And that's, I was older by then. I was sort of like 18. And that's kind of when I realized like, I, you know, I could actually like 
probably make a living out of that. I mean, for me, obviously, back then, making a thousand euros and, you know, doing something that was kind of fun, really, and with my best mate was an amazing opportunity. It was, it was, I couldn't believe that I could actually make money doing this. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, on the side, I did my business studies and I really didn't enjoy it at all. I did some internships in like a, like a advertising company. And that was, I just, I just really was kind of not inspired by the experience at all and by the corporate world and by having a boss overall, like it's something that I've always struggled with. Um, unless I really, it's someone I really respect, then I find it very difficult to take orders and to not open my mouth. So, and it's put me in sort of, you know, a trouble situation. So based on all of this, when I graduated from my BA in London, um, I, I thought I'm going to set up my company, my production company back in France. I went back to France and I set up a small company and for a year I did a lot of corporates and some music videos, filming concerts. And yeah, that's, I guess that's how I started and realized that I could actually survive for a year making very little money, but making enough to, to pay a rent and feed myself. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's how it started. And then how did you arrive at setting up Sweet Dough? And, so, and, and, and operating in London. Yeah, so, uh, so after doing that, that one year, I came back to London uh, and I thought I should do an MA in film production to sort of get a little bit of you know, academic knowledge because I felt like I didn't know anything because um, I literally didn't know anything and I had never set foot on a proper set. Everything I had done was just me and my friend just playing around and we just happened to, you know, be motivated and work hard and think on our feet so we could deliver something that looked all okay for, you know, 2002, I guess. Um, so, so I thought, okay, I'm going to do an MA. I came back to London because I, I missed London. Um, and I, I didn't really feel like France was for me anymore at that stage. So I came back to London, did an MA, and then while I did that MA, which was very, uh, you know, very theory oriented, I put up an advert, like a little paper at the London Film School saying, you know, runner available, uh, you know, just call me if you need any, someone to do anything. And, uh, and I, I got a call to work on this short film. And that was kind of like my first real onset experience. And it was kind of like a life-changing moment. I mean, it, it, it's, it was a really, you know, non-plus film. It was a student film. It was nothing, nothing life-changing about it. But for me, on my personal sort of like growth level, it was a really important moment because I, I got to see what a set was like. I got to understand the dynamics uh, that were going on on set and understanding the different roles. And I saw a first AD uh, and someone that really inspired me. And, and when I saw that guy, I was like, okay, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to be that guy because I think I'm going to be good at this. And, you know, I, I, I really remember this moment where all the runners were not allowed on set. So there was this closed studio and we, were, we had to wait outside. And then people would just come out and say, oh, can we get a cup of tea? Can we get this? Can we get that? And then we'd just give it to them and they would go back inside the studio. So we were not even allowed on set or near the camera, which was quite frustrating. But all the other runners didn't really care. They were just doing sudokus and just hanging out and chatting. And I, I felt so frustrated because I, I felt like I was so close to something that I really loved. But at the same time, I felt so detached from it. And there was this back door to the studio, like a little, like a little keyhole, like a little hole. And I basically spent half the day just sat like on my knees, just by the door, just sort of like looking through that hole and checking, checking the set and, you know, kind of like 
just yeah and again it felt quite depressing because i felt like oh my god if someone sees me it's so embarrassing but i was so curious you know i just really wanted to be in that on set i just wanted to be in that world so yeah so sort of fast forward uh, after that i just started being a first ad I, i got a few lucky breaks um in terms of getting job opportunities as a first ad so i didn't i didn't third or second i just started firsting on very small projects and then i got my first feature very you know very coincidentally from my bar job i was working in a bar and some i met someone there and they were like i'm doing a feature i'm looking for first ad it was just like so like what it's just a crazy story um and i did that feature and then an actor on that feature recommended it for another feature that he auditioned for which is also very weird um and they they contacted me and i did and then and then i sort of yeah i sort of carried on from that and and after working on a few films i i i thought i want to have more control over the films i work on because when you're a crew member you end up working on everything and anything and most of the films i get made let's face it are not very good because the scripts are not very good so i i thought okay I, you know i i feel like i'm meeting some people that have ideas that i can connect with and i think i have an sort of slight entrepreneurial kind of you know instinct so why don't i just start doing my own films and i can produce it and the first idea at the same time and and that's how sweet do started so that was in 2011 12 and yeah since then i've been doing a lot of short films basically a lot of short films and then a lot of corporates to keep myself alive pay the bills and uh you know it's still a very very small structure i'm still very indie i have by no means made it <laughs> um and it's you know it's it's a, it's a very very long learning curve and i'm i am enjoying the process of of learning and growing great so when you in the in terms of the shorts that you're working on i know there's sort of like there's a crew of you isn't there that you you collaborate with do you always work with the the same directors and if and if you do work with other new directors that you haven't worked with before how does that usually transpire do they send you scripts or what's the process that you go about finding directors to work with yeah it's it's so far it's always been either basically friends and you know i think that echoes to how i started as i said you know I, the whole thing started with me being 12 with my best mate and deciding let's just have some fun and it's that's that's a big part of what stimulates me and the sort of amount of gratification i get from something is is having a feeling that it's sort of justifying my life choice you know and understanding that uh yeah like a lot of my childhood friends they they're bankers or you know doctors or you know and they're doing really fantastic jobs that are really like contributing to, you know i mean bankers maybe not so much but you know either they've really kind of made it on the on the um, societal kind of level where you feel like oh yeah they're really established or they're just doing something that that feels like they're contributing so i that's something that's important for me to sort of trying to question myself and what i'm doing and where you know trying to justify my own choices so working with people that i get on with and i connect with and feeling like we're having a bit of a creative synergy where our brains are sort of like coming together into making something that works and that tells a story and that can inspire at least one person then that's kind of it for me so so the few the people i've met along the way when you work on the set and look your crew member like a first ad or any other crew member you meet hundreds of people throughout the year you know like you do because you just keep on working and getting on set and every set is 30 to 50 to 60 people and that's just on small sets 
So you end up meeting an incredible amount of people. And obviously from that can come a lot of friendships and a lot of collaborations uh, and just exchanging ideas. So that's sort of how, I st how it started. And, you know, it, there's only so much you can do uh, with your one producer. Um, and I, now, you know, now every now and then people contact me, people that I don't know, just email me, sending me scripts, um, direct, whether the directors or writers. And, uh, and I try to pick some that connect with, with me. Um, or yeah, that you know, that tell stories that I feel like I I want to tell, or I'm capable of helping them tell. And do you find that there's a different approach between when you're producing uh, shorts, scripted shorts, to to corporates in terms of like the creativity or the amount that you're involved creatively? Because often, you know, if you're producing like corporates or or adv adverts that type of thing, then a lot of the time the script is usually in place. Whereas with uh, shorts, the script might not be in place. And then as the producer, you're, you can sort of offer a guiding hand on the script and give feedback. And there's a lot more of a closer collaboration with the, with the director. Do you find that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, I'd be interested, actually, I would return the question to you, you know, like, because you're a writer-director. And in fact, you did approach me with a short like a long time ago, which, you know, I just, you know, we just realized that the other day, right? So, uh, you know, I was doing a job in South America at the time. And didn't really happen but so you just sort of came to a producer right with a script and so what was your expectations like you you were just looking for someone to help you make it or were you looking for someone you know creatively to sort of like, like help you develop it i just wanted some uh i think i wanted some support i wanted basically some help with the logistics side of things and um resources it was the first time where i had actually decided to work with a producer because up till then I'd produced everything myself. Yeah. So that in itself was a whole learning lesson, you know, learning curve to like, Oh, I'm going to sort of just, uh, just sort of letting go and, um, yeah. work it with collaborating with somebody else in that respect. It was, it was, it was a really great experience. It was definitely, um, useful. I, I think I needed that because I'm so used to doing everything myself. And after yeah. a while, you can get sort of like automatic pilot with that, with that approach. But as projects get bigger, you need help. You need, you yeah. need help. You can't, you can't do it. I think that's, I think that's the case for a lot of, you know, indie sort of uh, emerging writer directors. And I mean, th this, this is a story that I've heard, you know, many times, not, not to, you know, make you feel like not original, but it, it is literally like, that's how a lot of directors start. They just start doing it themselves until a point where they realize that one, they usually hate the production side of it because it's, let's face it, it's not always fun. I mean, a lot of it is really not fun. And two, they realize that you can't just be everywhere at the same time. You know, you can't, you can't sort of like, uh, yeah, you can't be pushing and pulling at the, at the same time. So, so you, that's where you need that sort of partner in crime, really. And the producer-director duo, you know, it's, it's, it's so crucial. So that's why, again, I was saying, you know, it's, for me, it's all about the connection I'm having with the person. Because especially as a producer, you're going to do a lot of, tasks that are really thankless so if you're doing it for for you know and or with someone director that you don't really connect with or someone whose belief you know vision you don't really believe in i mean that's not a way to live you just start thinking why am i doing this you know why am i you know comparing prices of portal you know, uh, for what, what what the hell is going on there so so yeah, I think as a, as a producer, like you said, like a, a lot of directors and writers, when they look for a producer, they just think, okay, here's someone who's going to sort, sort out my parking 
uh, and just get the catering done and that's going to be so great because I don't have to do anymore. And in essence, there's a lot of that. But, you know, for me, like a lot of the gratification I get from producing is also feeling like I can take creative ownership of it and that I can, you know, as I slowly build a sort of slate of shorts, I can try and keep uh, some sort of guideline, but like an editorial line in terms of making sure that the films that I make, they're not just singular things. They're just sort of like, it's like a mosaic of things that slowly, as I bring different films together, it's going to define a pattern of my work, you know, like essentially, because I work with different directors, so it will be different visions, it will be different styles, but I'd like to try and think that there is still a common thread, which is essentially kind of me and my company. And, and I guess that's how you build a production company. You just build a slate with different visions, different voices, but there's still a common thread and the common thread is you. So, you know, that's when I try to come in with a script and say, okay, you know, like, let's just take it back to basic. When someone brings me a script, the first thing, you know, I don't really say that because it's douchey. It's like, what's the story you want to tell? You know, like essentially that's where you go back to. Um, what are we saying here? What are we telling? And, and it's, it's, it's interesting to ask that question sometimes to writers or writer directors because they've usually been in that story for so long and you know they've been twisting and turning the plot so much and going in so much detail that sometimes just to have this you know, kind of neutral or sort of fresh pair of eyes is a really helpful process I think for writer directors and that's something that producers can bring a lot and I know that's something that I am very good at I'm very bad with a blank page like that's just not something I'm good at but having a page with a lot of words on it, like I think that's where I, you know, I can come and help because I can help you redefine and, and, and come back to the basics of what the story is and then try and guide everything towards that and not getting sidetracked on, on things that may detract the story, if that, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm expressing myself very well. But, yeah, um, no, that, that, it does make complete sense. And you're right. It's, it's sort of like a, it's having that... Uh, another pair of eyes to, to, to look at a script is so important, I think, for you know, a writer, director, or writer-director, because you can get caught up in your own, you can, you know, you're, caught, you're in your head. You, you sort of, after a while, you, you're questioning, is this good? Is this any good? Does this yeah. make sense? So you need, you need that, and you need somebody whose creative judgment you respect, and um, you have some, some there's, a, there's a connection there. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's crucial because, you know, feedback is the, you know, that's the enemy of, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great friend and a great enemy at the same time because you could send your idea to a million different people and get a million different opinions, right? So how do you go about it when you're even, and that applies to producers as well, you know, when, when I send my finished film to people, you know, I have to think very hard, who am I going to send this to? And am I really prepared to hear what they're going to tell me? Because what do you do about it after? You know, it's, that's, that's the big thing about, about being creative and sharing your creativity to the world is you have to be prepared to, to you know, you have to be ready for the feedback you will, you will be getting because it, it will influence you in a way. Either it will just reinforce you, maybe because someone says something positive or someone says something negative that you strongly disagree with. And you're going to be like, well, yeah, I disagree with that and I know why and that's fine. But it can also sort of really shake your belief in your project. And, uh, you know, I know that for me, that's a, still a learning curve in terms of, because I have to give a lot of feedback and I'm very careful now the way I do it because it's, it can be very destructive. 
and you can really kill an idea. You can kill someone's confidence by giving the feedback the wrong way. And you know, it, it goes from like really basic things of always starting with some positive, you know, I mean, this is like, a, yeah, again, the ABC of giving feedback. Like you, you don't want to just hammer down the negative or the big stuff straight away because someone who receives it, like they feel kind of attacked straight away. So you want to put someone at ease and say, well, here is what I think works, right? I think this is good. I think I understand what you're doing here. Now, this is my opinion. And I always try and say that because it's so important for writers and directors to hear it. You know, it's always a personal feedback, a personal opinion. And I always encourage people at the end of my feedback to sort of like seek further, you know, further notes, further help from other people to compare it because I'm not 100% confident that I'm right. I'm, I'm not really like, I'm just thinking this is, you know, and again, like a film is a really evolving medium. You start from, you know, an idea that ends up being words on paper that ends up being notes given to actors and to crews that ends up being, you know, a lot of rushes that ends up being timing and edits that ends up being layers of sounds and music. I mean, you know, it's so many. So when you're reading a script, like it's, it's tough to think like this is going to be great or it's not. It's, 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 it, it can be really hard and really challenging to try and develop a vision straight from paper to what this could be at the end, right? Uh, and I think that's when a producer can also come in and, and bring some experience to what one can do or, you know, seeing that vision, seeing that thread under everything and, and thinking, okay, this is something that can go to the, to the end product and, and go to a film that's going to, be, that's going to work well. Yeah. And I think what you're saying before about, you know, how you're careful in the way that you give feedback and notes, I think that's a real skill to be able to give notes in a sort of like, you know, fair, balanced and sort of compassionate way, but it, it works both ways. There's also a skill in terms of how you receive notes and how you respond to them. Because if yeah. someone is giving you notes, you know, that's their, that's their creative input. And so if you as the writer or director sort of throw a strop and just go, that's what you're talking about. That that yeah. makes no sense. Then, you know, really you're you're um you're having a stab at that person's opinion or judgment. And, you know, yeah. they're not doing it for any other reason than because they want to make the project work or make it better. So I think it like it works both ways in terms of the way that you give it and the way that you receive it and respond. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, and I mean, it goes into a much bigger thing, but feedback is so, it's such a underrated, you know, element of filmmaking and creative, you know, the creative industry because it just does so much. And there's, it's all, you know, again, I'm, I feel like I'm saying very basic things, but it's all about communication and communication is such a complex process because between what I think I'm saying, what I'm actually saying, what you want to hear, what you're actually hearing. And, you know, it's like, there's so many ways, there's a million ways to actually miscommunicate. So yeah. giving feedback is very, it's a very tricky process, which I in no way master. Um, but I have seen and experienced people like doing it in such a beautiful way um, that, you know, I, I feel like I've learned a few tricks of, or two in terms of how to do it efficiently. And, and I think it's so, you know, on the other, the, the other end of the spectrum is the fact that we live in an industry that, sometimes it's very shallow and you know a lot of filmmakers or friends filmmaker friends that sort of send me their films it's it's difficult you know like when someone sends sends you their film or their little baby and something they've worked on for so long it's very difficult to 
you know, am I am I going to be completely bluntly honest? You know, if I don't like it, what do you do? Like, if you're at a screening, and you know, the film you worked or, or someone who invites you to a screening, and you know, you watch a film and you don't like it. I mean, that's possible, right? Like, that's you're entitled to not like something. So at the end, your friend comes to you and say, "Oh, so what did you think?" You know, with like bright eyes, you know, like uh, sort of like expecting, you know, like what what are you meant to do, right? Like that's the big question. What's the right thing to do? Are you supposed to sort of like I mean, there's only three ways it can go, right? You can either just say something that says nothing, which I feel is what most people do, or you can blatantly lie and say, "I loved it. It was so good," and 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 you know, and live with it, <laughs> or you can be honest and say, "Well, you know what? I think it wasn't so good. I didn't like it." So, but that, what does that give you? What do, what do you gain from that? And it's that's something I'm sort of like still still struggling with in a way. I, I never really, I'm never really sure what you're. You know, there's so many layers to it because what do you gain from it? What does the other person gains from it? And that's that's an interesting, I think, an interesting question. Um, and and yeah, I, I try to sort of like basically, again, like do what I do when I get a script. I just say what I liked about it, and then if I had re reservations, then I just try and voice them because I feel like that's helpful. Um, and then if someone can't hear it, then that's a shame, you know, and so be it. But at least I feel like I've sort of done a bit of my duty. And I know that when I show my film to someone, I, I don't like it if they say, yeah, it was, yeah, you know, it was, it was good. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. It's like, yeah. okay, well, great. I, I don't feel like I'm getting anything from this. You know, it's, 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 like, it's, like, it's like talking to my mom about my job. You know, like you just you can never get full satisfaction like when you talk to your parents about what you do like you, you have this sort of expectation like a childlike expectations of someone giving you reassurance but it never really comes and it's very frustrating you know you, i don't know i mean maybe it's just maybe it's just my mom it's just not very cool no no i um, get the same thing <laughs> but you know what i'm saying yeah I, i'll never forget the look on the mic my mom and dad came around to listen to uh <laughs> when my radio 4 pilot came out last year they came around to listen to it and uh, just the look on my mum's face was priceless. It was just sort of like this look of bemusement and sort of completely just not into it whatsoever. And she did, she did nothing to try and hide that whatsoever. And I just find it funny. It's at a point now I just find it funny now. You know, she came, they came to a stand-up gig of mine. They hadn't seen me perform for like, I don't know, a year, a year and a half or something. And they came. And my mum was like, God, you're actually, actually quite good now. Like, it, it, she didn't phrase it that. It was sort of a very, it was like a very sort of, not, not intentionally backhanded compliment, but it was, it was the best yeah. I could, could possibly get from her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it must be, yeah, I, I can't even believe to imagine what it must feel like to be on, you know, like doing stand-up and having your, your mom, you know, dance there. It's like everybody's laughing except your mom just having a straight face, just looking at you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're wearing the wrong pants. You're wearing the wrong pants. Like, why did you dress up like that? Um, what did I tell you about swearing? No, it's not big. It's not clever. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about funding. So you've worked with Creative England and uh, BFI. Have you worked with those guys on, in terms of raising uh, finance or funding for, for films? Um, and, and if so, how was that whole process? Or how have you found the process in trying to find uh, funding for, for films that you've worked on? Uh, so, yeah. So I've... Yeah, Creative England and the BFI uh, have funded short films that I've produced before, um, in short. So that came out of applications. So I just applied for funding with a project, usually, you know, with the director. 
and um and you know it's a bit of a harrowing process you know you go through you know you go through sort of hoops and hurdles um but it's very satisfying when you get money <laughs> public money to make your film like that's you know that's that's a good feeling especially when you're like me and you come from a proper indie world where you know i nearly nearly went bankrupt on on making some of my shorts like genuinely genuinely putting all my money and that's like silly but i feel like there's a moment where you have to take some sort of leap of faith and when, it can you go say, when you say your shorts these shorts that you've produced in the past and you you've invested yeah. your own money in these yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, every short I've made, I've invested money in in, in it, every single film. Um, mm-hmm. And that's always been kind of my process, you know, uh, because, yeah, I, I, I take gratification and satisfaction from feeling like I'm, I'm being an active part in it. And that gives me a bit of sort of like, it gives me a creative uh, sense of creative belonging as well. And a sort of stance to it. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm invested literally in this in this project. Um, and it sort of forces me to sort of really go like above and beyond. So yeah, every film I've made, I've, even Creative England backed or BFI backed films, I still added some of my money. And obviously I never paid myself. Like I've never paid myself on a short film. I've done 15 shorts. I never, I never paid myself. That's not the idea. Uh, my, my thinking was always, if I'm t- making money out of this creative process, then I'm literally taking it away from the screen. So why am I doing this? Like that doesn't make sense. I know maybe it's probably wrong. You know, some people are probably screaming like, what the hell are you doing? You know, it's, it's, it's a bad way to look at it because it's not very profitable. <laughs> but I guess I've always been kind of lucky and I've always managed to essentially work as a you know, freelancer and make money like that and make enough money for me to not only pay myself and survive quite modestly, but also then reinvest some money into a project. So I used to sort of like say, okay, I'm going to do one short a year. So I'm going to work my ass off the whole year. And, you know, I used to work in a bar and then work on set at the same time. Like, that's kind of how I started. And, and then, yeah, I, I'm going to set aside, you know, one grand. I mean, that's how I started. The first short with my mate Zach, you know, we, you know, there was a two grand budget, if I remember well, 1500 or two grand budget. Shot over two weekends with some mates. Nobody's paid. Shot on the 5D. And, you know, it was like really as low budget as it gets. Um, and, yeah, we just put our money and it just worked. Festivals etc etc and you feel like okay this is working we know what we're doing clearly like we're not just in the wrong industry so from from there the projects grow and you know obviously budgets grow so there's a point where i can't just cover it myself and 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 yeah there's opportunities for public funding in the uk not many but there are some and i started looking into that maybe five six years ago so quite late in the process really i think i've done i've gone way too far on my own um but but you know it's never too late, and it's it's a tricky it's a tricky process, and I know a lot of people sort of are quite negative about this. You know, it's like yeah, but this money, you know, like it's always the same people who get it, and you know, like it's impossible to get it. It's so competitive, and I always you know use this uh, this this image. Like there was this advert one that I've, I'll never forget in France that was for the lottery. I don't gamble. I'm not a gambler at all, and I don't play the lottery. But I always remember this advert. It was a huge poster. And it just said that. It just said 100% of the winners played. And this to me is like, it's kind of like a life, you know, sort of like life lesson. Like 100% of the winners played. That's, That's it. That's right. Yeah. And it's so good. It's like, because people always say like, oh, if I win the lottery, oh, if only I won the lottery. Yeah, but have you played ever? 
Well, if you haven't, then why are you even, you know, that's, that's literally, so I'm translating that to public funding and saying like, well, if you want to win that little lottery and, you know, literally public funding is lottery money, then you got to play it. So you got to apply and you got to apply and you got to apply and you play the odds. And eventually, yeah, I think I'm, you know, I think I'm the proof that eventually you get it. And it's hard work and it's annoying and it's boring uh, and it's tedious. But one, it's, I think it helps you with resilience. And two, it helps you question your project and really go deep into what you're doing and trying to pitch it and un understand how you have to transmit your idea to other people who know nothing about it and who have very little time to read about it. So, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how I got into the public funding kind of world. And I'm in no way established. Again, like, uh, you know, I've received money from Creative England once for a short film. Uh, we did a BFI shorts last summer which is now in post-production, so we're working with the BFI right now. Uh, I got some arts council money in Ireland once, for sure. And, and then lately, I got uh, development money for my first feature, which I'm developing with, uh, with the director friend. So we're, we're in the process right now. It was just before lockdown, so we're, we're developing our, our feature. Amazing. And, uh, see where that takes us. That's great. Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. And do they um, sort of these uh, the funding um, grants or let's say BFI or Create Creative England and these type of institutions are they taking into account your portfolio of previous shorts that you've produced or is it mostly focused on the directors or is it a combination of both? Because as you said, you'd already been making stuff for five six years. Do you think that stands in your favour when you're making an application compared to say? A producer who's maybe done one or two shorts, uh, but perhaps has maybe got a director who's, who's done a, a few shorts. I don't know. Is, 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 it's is, hard to tell. Really. You'd have to ask them, I guess. I mean, I, I, I don't know what really goes in their you know, selection process. Um, and, and in a way, that's what's really frustrating because sometimes you feel like you're applying with something that's bound to get it, and then you get a no, and you don't really have feedback. You don't really know what right. to make. And that's a, that's a tough process because you have to bounce. You have to know how to bounce from it without having any really constructive feedback. We're going back to that. But it's like, sorry, we can't give you feedback, but you know, do you know, try again, try again later. So that's a bit of a half one, hard one, and I don't know what works. I don't know what they're expecting, and I, I think it's. I talk about that a lot to, to directors when talking about festivals because, in a way, it's a similar kind of process. You know, you're, it's a really competitive world where you're submitting your work to a platform that will help you. Right? I mean. You know, public money, public funding will help you make it. Festivals will help you showcase it uh, and give you a sense of credibility. But, you know, you never really know whether you're going to get selected or not. It's very hard to know. And in fact, what's the hardest, you know, and what took me a while to understand um, is that not only your selection process to these things will depend on your work and your profile. But unfortunately, it also depends on the work and the profile of the other people who happen to have applied when you did it. Because if you put yourself in the perspective of the person selecting, they, they're building, they're building a, a slate, you know, they're building or they're building a program of short films. So if you're the only coming of age 
film that happens to have, you know, sub submitted to a festival, then maybe you're not going to get in because they, they can't really make a program of 10 coming of age shorts. Does, does that make sense? So mm. I know I'm sort of simplifying it here. And also I'm kind of assuming because I don't know that for a fact. But I feel like it's got to be that way because if, if I was, a, you know, working at the BFI or, or working at uh, XYZ Film Festival and I'm receiving 5,000 submissions, how do you start? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you build it? You're like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to create, you know, oh yeah, I'm getting all these films about this topic. So maybe I'm going to try and do this. And I think similarly to BFI, like they, you know, especially in this day and age, they want to be very careful with not only the project that they pick, but how all the projects together look like. Because if it all looks like they're just going in one direction, then that looks bad and quite, you know, quite understandably so. So if all the directors happen to be, you know, white males, then, then that looks bad, you know, and it's fair enough. Like you want to try and show diversity and diversity is such a huge sort of element of our creative industry right now. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's about time. Uh, I just so happen to be a, you know, white straight male. So I guess bad luck for me, but at the same time, it's, it's bloody about time that that diversity is taken into account and, and that people think a bit, you know, wider, they look wider at the scope of people who get a chance and decide, mm -hmm. well, let's just try and reflect the society as a whole, because you've got the French thing going for you. So at least that's something. Well, yeah, I never know if it's going for me or against me, quite <laughs> frankly. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's hard to say, it's hard to say, but uh, the fact is the two, the, the two times I got funding from BFI slash Creative England was with, a short, with the same director who happens to be also French. So that's a bit of a strange, strange coincidence. But um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. It's a little very yeah, long no, it does, it does. Thank you. Um, so what's your thoughts then on um, the short film festival circuit? Because that's, that's how you and I met at Palm Spring yeah, Short Fest, right. uh, which, was, which was a really amazing experience, I found. Um, but um, for your latest short, for instance, Contractor 014352, have I got that correct? Oh, I'm impressed, yes. You got the series of the digits right. None other than Johnny Flynn, which the is... memorable short film title ever. Yeah. The hardest to remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're going to be unlucky if uh, you've got another film title under the same name submitting for... Festivals. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's the thing. Like, you know, if you go on IMDb, if you type contractor 014352, there's only one film that comes up and you can't yeah. say that for many titles. So for that, you, you submit, you did the whole festival run. And this is often the case that people who, who submit films and they do the whole festival run, it's then tricky to release the film online because some festivals have embargoes and they want, they don't want any sort of online, you know, they don't want the film to be released online. I didn't, follow that i went down a different route do you think yeah, that yeah. where we're at like right now because since you've released it obviously it's got some really it's it's how many views has it got now you released in a week, uh, a, week ago, you? a week ago yeah it's got like thirty-five thousand. which is great it's good yeah, yeah it's good yeah, which is great well, if you think, if you think about it, yeah and the festival circuit i mean yeah exactly exactly oh. so you think about it from that perspective do you think like the short film festival circuit do you think that whole model of submitting to all these festivals and the expenses uh, involved and not hearing back a lot of the time from people. Do you think that whole model is outdated and actually it is, is a better route to go down releasing online and maybe submit selectively or what's your, what's your views on that? Well, Steve, I guess I'm going to give you like a very unsatisfying answer, but it depends. It depends. 
it yeah. depends, you know, like, and I think the, the main parameter is it really depends on what you're making out of it. Mm. And, and that applies to anything in life. But festivals, they're great. But if all you're getting out of it is a laurel you're going to put on your trailer, on your Facebook feed, then I think, you're, you're, I think you've just spent 40 bucks for, for a Photoshop thing. You know, like, it's just, it's not really what you can get out of festivals. What you can get out of festivals is meeting people. And, yeah. you know, it's, that's, that's the end of it. So when I work on my festival strategy and when I advise, you know, friends or, you know, filmmakers that, that ask me my, my opinion, I tell them, okay, well, this is what I would do if I were you, is I would focus on local festivals, as in in your territory. Because at least if you're selected, you kind of know that you can go there, right? Because if you're selected at like, you know, the Bali Film Festival, well, it's great, but are you prepared to pay two and a half grand to go to Bali Film Festival if you've never heard of it? Uh, you know what you're gonna get out of it. And, you know, it's that, that's kind of what it comes down to. So I think that trying locally is a good idea, and then trying for festivals where, which sort of mean something to you in terms of the name is also still meaningful. You know, I think if, you, if your short is in Toronto, uh, you know, then, then you feel like, yeah, I'm probably going to go there. It's not going to be cheap, but I think if I go there, I'll get opportunities if I work at it. If I go with that sort of frame of mind of like, I'm going to go there and milk this plane ticket. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of what we did when, when we met in Palm Springs. You know, I'm sure you went there for the same reason as, as we did. Well, in fact, we went there because we had been there once before and we loved the pool parties. Let's, let's, yeah, let's be honest. But, but no, but also it was, is, you know, there, was, there were several elements that went for Palm Springs Short Fest. Is that one, it's a short festival only. And that's another advice I give to people. If you're a short filmmaker, I think if you have a fairly big festival that is only short films, you're going to feel a lot more satisfied and gratified than if you're going to a massive festival that also have features. Because if you're a short filmmaker, you're always going to be a small player. With, you know, you're going to be, the, you know, you're not going to be at the, at the grown-up's table because you're just here with a short. And here you've got people in the film market that are selling features for distribution. So, you know, come on, you've got to be realistic. So Palm Springs was a good example because it's a fairly big short film festival. Uh, it's short films only. And yeah, there's opportunities because we've got loads of short filmmakers that can gather and, uh, and there's attention that can be brought to your film, even though it's a short, right? So that's kind of what I make out of the, out of the festivals. Then, you know, releasing film online is, in a way, the same applies. It depends, because if you're going to put your film on your Vimeo page and you're going to get, you know, uh, 400 views, well, it, it can be a little bit disappointing. It can feel like a very anticlimactic way to end a journey, which usually takes at least one, if not two or three or four years to make even a, even a 10 minute short film. And you know, you would know that for a fact. So you kind of want to end with a bang. I mean, everybody wants to end with a bang because, because it's like a celebration and a conclusion to a, to a long process that's, you know, that's usually like taking a lot of your time, energy and money. So it's difficult, it's difficult. And you know, the online world now is like very competitive uh, as, as, as you know, and it's not really about your channel. If you're not like an established, you know, sort of company or an established short film platform or film platform online, then you have to rely on other bigger platforms than you that can help you tap into big, wider audiences. So that's what you've done, you know, with Swiped. And that's what we did with Contractor last week. You know, we submit, submitted to, to Omleto and they're a big platform and they just happen to like it and believe in it and want to give it a chance. And essentially they give it a chance for a month. And if it just got enough views, then they leave it up there. So 
it's it, again it's a bit of a thankless process because sometimes it's not going to work and you don't really know why and they don't really know why either it's like sorry people just didn't click on it you know that's that's what it is so and and you know and the online sort of world can get a little bit muddy because you can buy likes you can buy views i mean there's, there's things that you can do to sort of like influence algorithm which i'm in no way a specialist i mean i just i don't know i, I love playing games but i hate cheating and i feel like that's kind of like cheating. So I don't think you're going to get satisfaction from it. I feel like you're going to know deep down that, you know, it wasn't really like yours. But, but it, can, it can influence your, you know, the course of, of, of your journey. So I'm, I'm not sure really. I'm, I'm not actually set on that. Yeah, I think um, you can usually tell if views have been bought because there's always like some disparity between the amount of views and the engagement levels. Yeah. So yeah. Often people can say, okay, they, they might well have bought. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, and in fact, YouTube, you know, I think the algorithm of YouTube kind of takes that into account, like, because if you buy views, they don't, you know, now it's, it's all about the duration and the, the sort of the, the drop ratio. So when people stop actually watching your thing, like it's about people clicking, but also people staying on the link, right? So yeah. if, if like you got like 10,000 clicks, but everybody just dropped after zero seconds, then YouTube just knows it and it doesn't, it, it sort of like doesn't treat it as a video that's being popular. So yeah. I, I know that for a fact. And I, I don't know how it works for likes. Um, that's actually, I don't know. So maybe it's different. Yeah. I think um, the other thing about short films, something that I didn't realize before, but how much uh, they are used as calling cards to get into TV. Like so yeah. many production companies and development execs will look at shorts um, as calling cards. And does that work the same for you as a producer? Because I think you said you were going to be starting work on a TV series project before obviously all this lockdown shenanigans happened. Yeah. So, I mean, quite frankly, I'm not really experienced enough in the TV world to sort of like answer this, you know, with a very insightful manner. Uh, I've, I have a sort of like, I've, I've experienced working on TV. I've, I've worked on this uh, National Geographic show called Banged Up Abroad uh, for like four years and I produced some episodes for it. Um, and and then sort of recently I was supposed to be a junior producer on a Netflix show, uh, but that's sort of been put on hold, so I don't know where it's going anymore. But um, I, uh, in my case, I didn't use my shorts to get into that world. It would just happen to be recommended and then getting an interview to a friend and then having experience working abroad, which, you know, helps for Bank of World because you literally mm -hmm. have to shoot elsewhere. So, um, I, yeah, I'm sorry, but I don't actually know. I don't actually know the TV world enough. But I know for a fact that for feature films, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely useful to have a short. Not only to show your ability, but to also show the, the sort of value of your idea and how it can be exploited within short form. And, you know, in many ways, making a short is very hard. Sometimes maybe harder than making a feature because you have to be very succinct and you have to sort of be able to sell an idea and round it up and, and create conflict and engagement for a character in such a short lapse of time, right? So it's, it's tough, like, uh, you know, and audiences are in a way very sort of like, can be very brutal with short films. Um, and, and, you know, I, th I think that's, that's where the calling card can work, as well, can work as well for whether you're going in TV or in the film world is showing like, well, this is my idea. This is a proof of concept. And mm. I think this idea can work. And here is the proof. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting as well, like the role of the producer changes depending on 
which world you're in, right? The world of, I touched upon this briefly earlier, the world of, I mean, being a producer as a TV, in, a t, in TV commercials or branded content yeah. is a yeah. very different role to producing in short films, which again is different to producing in TV. Yeah. Or, or in, future, I mean, experience. in fact, producer is such a sort of like broad term. You know, yeah, producer. right. And, and in fact, you know, I mean, when I tell people who don't work in the film industry that I'm a producer, no one knows what the hell it means. You know, like mm. uh, the, the most common things like, but what do you do exactly? You know, what do you do? I mean, people always, you know, associate producer with raising money. Yeah. Um, and that's what, you know, people who are not in the film industry sort of see a producer as, as being. But, uh, but in fact, it's, that's a very, you know, small part. It's an important part, but a small part of what we actually do on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of like, you know, there's a, there's a common analogy of like saying that a, a film is kind of like a film is kind of like a boat and, and the director is like the captain, you know. And I, I you know, I, I, I'd say that the, the producer is like the hull, is the hull of the boat, you know, like that's getting smashed in the face with, with icebergs. Like that's, there's a producer that, that was writing about mental health that sort of said that. And I thought it was so true. It's like, that's what you're doing as a producer. You're just getting smashed in the face constantly to sort of keep the thing going forward, you know, and the captain is giving the direction, so he knows where he's going. But if, if the thing is, you know, if there's no hull, if the hull breaks, then the ship just sinks, you know, like this, you know, you can know where you're going. If there's no structure, if the structure doesn't hold, then, then it's not, you know, you're not going to go anywhere. Um, but yeah, on short films, producer does kind of every, every aspect of the production because you're usually on your own. But mm. the bigger the project gets, the more sort of like, you know, compartmentalized the, the producing aspect of the film sort of gets and, and the more sort of specialized each producer sort of becomes. So, yeah, it, it, and, and, and yeah, in, in TV, there's, there's different layers of producers, of course, as well. Um, and my, you know, my official title when I work in TV is, is field producer uh, or shoot producer. So I, that's kind of what I love. I love being on set and I work on that. Like that's when I, you know, come to life. It's like, throw me on the set and I'll make it happen. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of my, my, my calling card here. Um, and, and it's about, yeah, getting a team together, you know, and, and making them, giving them the right resources to be able to do their job properly. Essentially, that's, that's, that's one of the elements of being a producer and that's the one I, I'm working on myself. So what you said before uh, leads me nicely to um, next question. So what do you do when you're in a situation when you're producing a project and it is all going to shit and um not even when it's going to shit you know you're under so much project uh, pressure a lot of the time as a producer how do you handle that in terms of it affecting your your mental health well it's 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 tough you know like it's it's difficult because yeah like as a producer you're supposed to keep a you're supposed to stay strong right you're supposed if if the, if if, if you're on a set and you look at the producer and the producer is crying in a corner, you're like, oh my God, we're fucked. Like literally, <laughs> you, you just know like everybody's just, is like going to start pulling their hair out thinking yeah. it's a catastrophe. So you can't show it. You, you, you have to sort of like, it's kind of like, you know, the analogy of being like a duck, you know, like the duck is always like looking very calm on the surface, but underwater is fucking pedaling like crazy. So that's, that's what being a producer is for me. You know, like you have to sort of have a face of like everything's going really well. And especially with directors, you know, like when you're a producer, that's a crucial thing because you have such a, such a symbiotic relationship with your director. Like your director should be able to tell you anything that's going on, 
But you as a producer, you absolutely should not tell the director everything that's going on. That's the last thing you should do. The director should be completely sheltered from what is happening. So as a, as a producer, you end up sort of like retaining a lot of it. And that's difficult. You know, I, I, I wouldn't, I think I'd be presumptuous if I said that I know how to deal with that uh, very well because it's, it's tough to sort of find an outlet to sort of, yeah, release this. And, you know, I mean, for me, it's uh, just having a great wife, you know, like uh, that's, that's very helpful to be able to talk about it and voice it. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's my, that's my way of dealing with it. And then having your own sort of outlets or your own platforms where you can unwind. And I know, you know, you always ask people, do you do yoga or this kind of thing or sports? And, you know, yeah, for me, like sports and music, playing music is is so important. It's it's such a good way to sort of like disconnect. What sports do you do? Well, yeah, I play a lot of football. I mean, not these days, but like five-a-side. And and just games. I just love games. Like not just sports. I play like ping-pong, darts, bowling, pool arcade just like i just love like playing stuff so uh, i do love that um and just card games and dice and just meeting with friends and playing games like that's a great way for me to actually unwind and disconnect it's still a competitive competitive well i'm quite a competitive guy but um but it's you know with no pressure no stakes i don't gamble um yeah apart that's from when you buy lottery apart from when you buy lottery tickets yeah which which I should if I wanted to win, but I don't want. That's the last thing I want to do is win the lottery. In fact, because no. uh, statistics have proven that uh, it's like it's like an incredible amount of people. Like it's like seven, over seventy five percent of people who win the lottery end up being exactly at the same place like five years later. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, we, we, you will you will because you're going to put all the money into your films. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I've been doing. The lottery money I got from the BFI, I just yeah, exactly. literally spent it all. Uh, plus mine, plus my own. So yeah, don't, don't play the lottery. Unless, you know, no, just don't play it. Don't play it. <laughs> and <laughs> what, so in terms of like getting creatively inspired, are you, do you watch a lot of stuff? Because, um, you know, this, this sound, we're at a point right now where like we're saturated in terms of the amount of content available, to, you know, yeah. for us to consume. So on one hand, you've got all sort of like stuff on Netflix to watch and all these, all these stream uh, on all the streamers. And then on the other hand, as a producer, are you also looking through Vimeo and, and, and look at like proactively looking for filmmakers and trying to keep on top with what's out there on a short film uh, basis? I probably should. <laughs> I don't think I am. I, you know, I'm not like a huge not a huge consumer. I'm not like completely immersed in just looking and watching a million things. Like I, I think I value my own time a bit too much. And I, you know, I, I work hard on, on what I do. So, and there's two, you know, when you're a filmmaker and you would know that there's, there's two ways you can watch something, right? You can watch a film like a filmmaker or you can watch a film like any random person and just like disconnect to turn off your brain. And it's, uh, I try to watch things as an audience, if possible, because I love it. <laughs> That's why I did it in the first place. So um, I, I, I'm not, yeah, I don't actively search for people. I don't actively search for filmmakers or I like to watch what's being made. Um, and I do enjoy festivals. I do enjoy being in the cinema uh, and watching films that come out and, and, uh, and, yeah, watching a whole bunch of shorts. Like, that's something I really enjoy, especially with them, if, if I'm with friends or filmmaker friends, sort of chat about it after. Um, but at home, I'm, I'm not huge on that. I mean, I, yeah, I have Netflix and you know, Amazon Prime, and I, I do watch 
I'm a, I'm a consumer of, uh, of films and TV, but uh, not in a, an obsessive, compulsive kind of way of thinking like I've got to know everything that's out there. And I do kind of feel bad at times about it because I do have friends that are like so knowledgeable, so, so knowledgeable that it makes me feel, I feel like shit, oh, maybe I should know more. Maybe I should like, you know, spend more time actually researching and watching more things. But you know, it's, it's about balance, right, Steve? It's about mm-hmm. balance. So I think you need to have other things going on in your life to feel like you're growing in other areas. Um, I think that's and also a lot, a lot of, it's a lot of, uh, I find a lot of the time it's those moments when you are doing other things involved in different activities that inspiration will hit as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's, it's inspiration. I, I don't know, because I'm not, I'm not the guy that gets inspired and that just sits in front of a page and just starts writing stuff, you know, but I feel like inspiration probably comes from the least expected places. And it's usually when you've, uh, your guard is down, you know, and, and you, you're not prepared and then it hits you. Uh, that's, and, and, you know, and that's why the best ideas, maybe in my case, seem to come either when I'm in the shower or when I'm just about to fall asleep, because that's when your guard is kind of down and you're literally either naked or just about to fall asleep. So it's, you know, it could be more vulnerable in both places. Uh, and that's when the good ideas seem to come. So it's, it's an interesting, you know, and if you're just sitting and watching something and think, I've got to find this genius idea, let's do it. You know, like, of course, it's never going to happen. Never going to work like that. No, no, I've just given myself a few days off just because I found, uh, I got to the end of the last week and I was just, it was sort of like I was pushing it, trying to churn it out, you yeah. know, trying to churn a, it it was it it, it 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 stopped being enjoyable yeah and so yeah i mean obviously the weather's really good as well so that's also it's partly that part i just want to get a tan but you know just having that time away is needed every now and then I think. yeah there's something interesting also about deadlines like i think it's a it's an interesting i was actually talking to my my friend simon about it earlier and i know like the, the one of the few creative outlet creative outlets i have is i love writing speeches I do that a lot, like for, you know, birthdays or weddings or, you know, people, people I love. I love writing speeches. And it's, I always think, okay, I've got to write something, I've got to write something. But, you know, the thing doesn't necessarily come. And it's usually like at the very last moment that something just happens. And it's not great because it's anxiety prone, because you're building that anxiety thinking, shit, I haven't done it, I haven't done it, I haven't done it. But, but somehow, you know, when the deadline comes, it always seems to happen. And I, I wonder if it's not really like part of the process that you have to sort of like, there's, there has to be an element of pressure that puts you in a more instinctive kind of mindset where you're like, shit, I've got no more time. I've got to do it. I've got to go it. You know, and you just go and you're not thinking anymore. You just, now you're just doing it, you know, and it's a, it's an interesting element of, and that's why I think setting you, yourself a deadline is so important when you're working creative, you know, a creative industry. I mean, that's so crucial. It's almost like rule number one. Like, don't just leave it open because you're never going to do it. Come on. Like, it's so hard. You have to sort of set yourself some deadlines. They have to be realistic. It's not like I'm going to write this feature script within the next three days, you know, but it's like, I'm going to do a page a day, you know, and it might be good. It might be shit, but I'm going to do it. Right. And, and if you set yourself some, some deadlines, then you're just pushing yourself to sort of like go into layers, sub layers of your mind that, that might not have been exploited otherwise because mm. of that sort of added pressure, you know, and, and, and the instinct sort of kicks in um, or the intuition kicks in. And I think that's when a lot of the great ideas come from. Yeah, I agree. I'm a big fan of deadlines. I, I like deadlines that are 
given to me, you know, deadlines yeah. where like, if I don't hit that deadline, then I'm going to look bad. Yeah. Yeah. So like the problem becomes is when you give yourself deadlines, you, you've got to raise the stakes somehow. Like yeah. it was like, you've got to give yourself a punishment, right? If I, <laughs> if I don't do this today, then I cut a finger if I don't get my page. I was going to say finger. Yeah. I thought a hand would be too excessive. <laughs> that's the mafia, that's the mafia style, right? It was payback. I don't know if you've seen payback. Like uh, Mel Gibson. Yeah, yeah. It's like you get smashed, up, smashed to yeah. toe, like one by one. Yeah. Um, good film, that. Good underrated, yeah. Actually, um, but that's where that's where having a really asshole producer can be really helpful because he's going to give you a really shit. Bring out line. the knife. Yeah. Bring out the knife. Say, you fucking dare, right? Otherwise, I'm not out of again. Here. I've only got one finger left. <laughs> well, don't make so many films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Deadlines are well. It, it's like the, that fine balance. I talked about this before. It's like, okay, so I've given myself a couple of days off, but I can already feel the guilt creeping in. Yeah, yeah. like I feel well, guilty for not. I'm big, I'm, I'm big on guilt, man. I'm big, big on that. But it's, horrible. it's a good thing. You think it's a good thing to feel uh, guilt? No, I, I no, no, I don't think so. But I'm, I'm, I'm very sort of like I'm a victim of it a lot. Like, oh right, okay, you're a victim of it, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I'm not a big fan of guilt. <laughs> yeah, I love feeling guilty. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> but, um, that, but I think that that feeling of guilt is, um, is very much associated with freelancers. You know, if you are not in a, um, say the word nine to five, but if you're not in a paid job necessarily. And yeah. you are um, responsible for your own output. You know, if you, you've, you've got to make stuff in order to get paid or make things happen, then it's inevitable that you are going to feel guilty if you feel like you're slacking or you haven't put in a good shift today. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to know whether that's a positive thing or a negative thing, right? It's probably somewhere in the middle. There's probably some positive about it because it's pushing you to do it, but it's negative because guilt is not a good fuel. I don't think it's... A- no, but then going back to this idea of balance, it depends really what you want to hit, right? What, what sort of level do you want to hit? If, if going back to the beginning of our conversation, talking about the last dance and Michael Jordan, yeah. you can see how, how obsessive he is. To be at that level, to reach a certain level, you do have to have a degree of obsession. And so probably that kind of guilt or whatever, whatever you need to fuel you, to, to fuel you is, is essential for you to get to that level like yeah, but, but you look at michael jordan there's there's no guilt you know like oh it doesn't seem to be no. any guilt involved like he's not that's the thing like he's never doing it because he's feeling guilty right like he's doing it because he fucking wants it you know like uh and but i it's think different, that, no but he's got he's i guess it's different in terms of like he's turning up on court he got he, there's nowhere for him to hide he can't procrastinate oh i'm not gonna i'm not well, gonna I think, always can, man. I think you always can and again like we're looking at you know I think you have to think back, like, uh, and, and that's the mistake a lot of people do, especially when they're not in the creative world or, or just anyone, really. It's like looking at their idol and thinking, like, they're having it so easy. It seems so easy. It, it, it's, it's made to look easy, but it's been hard. And it's always been hard, and there's been a lot of failure involved, you know? And I think, you know, there's always a way to procrastinate. There's always ways to sort of say, ah, oh, I'm not going to do it, right? Like, but... But like you said, this needs to be, if, if you want it so hard, then there has to be a, a certain level of obsession and sort of motivation for greater sort of like the end of it. You can see the end of it and, and you're going to work towards that, right? So I think, it, yeah, I mean, you know, 
yeah, Michael Jordan's example is, is, is so great. But it's, I think guilt is not the right way to go about it. You know, I, no. I, I, I'm quite sure about that. And that's why I've, I feel guilty for feeling guilty, which is just really stupid. <laughs> but I, I think like, what, you have to try and replace the guilt with a positive fuel. And, you know, if you look at Michael Jordan, I mean, he, you know, he had this father. I mean, that, at least I don't, I don't know an expert on the guy. I've only just happened to finish the series last night. But, you know, his father sort of, you know, looking and the, the look of his father was, you know, massive fuel. And then just being innately competitive. I mean, that's clearly the guy is a gambler. You can tell. And it's actually really funny. Like the last episode, there's a moment where he's, you know, the guy asks him, oh, were you happy to sort of like quit at your peak? which is something that earlier on he said in, in the car interview, he said, like, you know, I really want to quit at my peak because that's the way to go, that's the cool way to go. But then when he's being asked at the end, it's like, were you happy? He's like, no, I wasn't. I wanted to carry on. I, I thought I could win it a seventh time. So, and you can hear, like, you can hear the gambler there. You can hear the guy that just can't stop. He just can't. can't. Stop, yeah. and, it's, and he, in a way, is really lucky that he, it was forced upon him because whether he wants it or not, clearly he's a gambler. You know, like, I'm not saying he's, like, compulsive or dangerously, but he loves gambling. He's a competitive guy. Yeah. And he would have carried on if that hadn't, that thing hadn't, you know, the, the, the team hadn't been dismantled. Um, I, I, I listened to an interview. It was an interview before this, uh, the documentary came out. And um, he basically said he hadn't picked up a ball since he retired. Yeah. He doesn't play, yeah, he doesn't play uh, pick up or he doesn't play like five aside or anything like that. Um, because he's worried because he's in the back of his mind, he knows if he, as soon as he picks up that ball, all those competitive feelings are going to come back and he'll want to play and play and play and play. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, that you always have to take this, these kind of documentaries with a, bit, with a pinch of salt, of course, because there's, you know, there's an editorial line as well here, you know, like they're just, you know, they're formatting it for a certain message, right? So it's, it's difficult to know. There's a, there's a, there's a, I know you always ask about books um, and there's a book I love, which are, you may have read, uh, which is, um, Andre Agassi's uh, autobiography opens. So good. So good, yeah. And that's like, I, I think this is fantastic because it really gives you a real insight what it's like to be an athlete and the sort of love-hate relationship you may have with something you're doing. And I think it's so inspiring, you know, because, because that's the struggle. You know, you're struggling with something that you love and you may hate at the same time. And you have to find the energy in you to keep doing it thinking, ah, oh, this is why I'm doing it, this thing at the, at the far end, you know, I'm doing it for that, that target. But I fucking hate it, but oh, I'm just going to do it anyway. And it's, it's, I thought that book was so inspiring because it's, he's not just sugarcoating it and saying, oh, yeah, you know, I was just working really hard and it was just so, you know, but then I just did it and then, and then I'm a champion and it's so cool. It's like, well, no, I'm a champion and then I'm hating it and then I'm bad again and then I'm good again and then I, and then I want it and then I don't want it anymore and now I hate it. And then it ends with him sort of playing, you know, the, the last scene is just, the, well, the last scene of the book is, is him playing with Steffi Graf. And uh, it's just the two of them having this sort of like informal little sort of like training session. And then, and then it, they, build the, they build the momentum again. It's kind of like, you know, the natural sort of comes back, like the competitiveness. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty great. It's like a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, but yeah, I, I know there was one thing that I wanted, you know, that I thought about. And I think that's, that's so, so important about the creative industry is that, you know, you always look at people who've succeeded, right? Because that's the, that's the role model, that's the benchmark. And you think these guys, they, they fucking understand it. They, they get it and they know. And, you know, Michael Jordan in The Last Dance, he described like that, like the guy who had his 
models and he just made it and he's so satisfied and and it's a happy ending he's just made it he's become the greatest of all greatest you know and it's i feel like that's this i don't think that's how the world really works but i don't know it really depends how your mind works but i feel like you're always gonna how am i gonna say that i try to remember that my heroes the people that i look up to you know people who i think i'm never gonna be able to do what they've done right yeah, the, the greatest, you know, like the, the Kubricks, the, the Beethoven, okay. you know, the people that have overcome such huge things. And what you have to try and remember, it's going to be very obvious, I'm going to say, but that they're just like you, right? They're just a dude or a girl. And that they themselves, they had their own role model. And even when they made it, they still thought, I'm still not as good as that guy that was just there before them, right? So, you know, I think there's a sense of, eternal sort of like dissatisfaction somehow like when you're working in the creative or you know the creative world it, actually this is a, it's not my idea like it's it's an episode of the simpson which i think is a fantastic episode like i don't know if you've seen it it's like homer homer wants to be an inventor and he's he's becoming obsessed with edison and he decides to sort of like invent all these things and you know he's got like a little timeline on his wall and it's like him and then edison who's like like 10 steps ahead of him and he's trying to sort of catch up with the amount of inventions that he's going to do. And, and then he sort of like crashes down and is so depressed because he realizes he's never going to do it. And then he, it finishes with him going to the Edison Museum. And he goes to the Edison Museum and he realizes that Edison has the exact same timeline with him and then Da Vinci. And Da Vinci is like so far ahead of him, he's never going to catch up. And that was such an interesting sort of like way to look at success. Because success is only relative to what you make of it and what's been before you, right? Like you may always have someone that you think is going to be better than you that you're never going to reach. So you have to sort of like put that in perspective a bit. Um, I don't know if that's a really great point. As a re, I think it's very easy. It's very easy to get caught up and compare yourself to other people and their journey. But yeah, it's your own. You're on your own path, right? I mean, we're hit with comparisons all the time. I mean, that's all we're getting. Like that's all what all social media is, is just comparison. You're just hearing, you know, people, how they're doing and how you're doing. And, you know, I, I know I'm a big victim of that. And my mental health is highly affected by comparing myself with other people and how they're doing. And it's, it's very difficult to deal with. And I have friends who deal with it in, you know, who find it incredibly hard and who disconnect from all of this and just get off social media just for that very same reason. Thinking, you know what, I can't deal with it can't deal with comparing myself with the world and it's you know it sort of goes back to what you were saying you know do i research a lot do i watch everything and that's sort of what stops me a bit because i'm sort of thinking just maybe just don't compare yourself too much just watch things that inspire you but then just also try and find your moment where you're just with yourself and you try and do something that you like right and not thinking too much about what the others are doing um it's it's finding that you know, again it's finding that balance so have you got is there any sort of like producer-led people who you look at and you go oh they are they're like way over there i, I want i or, or you look at you go that's the kind of ideal career that i want or i'm i'm, I'm striving for yeah not hugely actually you know what like it's it's interesting but like um funnily enough i get i get really inspired by writer directors um and by the idea that they made but I, I find that you know a lot of producers careers are quite sort of like scattered and they, they do some really great stuff and some not so great stuff, which I think is just normal. Um, mm. Maybe it's, it comes from my fear of comparing myself. Yeah. Um, 
but recently I actually had to do a BFI application where I had to sort of like describe my, you know, like a producer that I admired and I, I picked Nora Park um, and, you know, she's, she's still here and, uh, she, you know, she did some really cool sort of comedy action films uh, in the UK and she's someone who's, you know, who started with nothing um, and, you know, she did big talk pictures and she, she, you know, she created her own, own structure and, and it grew so big and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's great. I mean, it's a great journey. It's a fantastic journey. And it felt like it, it felt like it's, I, mean, I don't know her, you know, personally. And I only sort of like researched her background on, on surface, but it feels like it just came from a very indie uh, place, which is where I started as well. Just starting with your own thing where you retain control and it's a bit low key, low budget, you know, like spaced, you know, like a love space. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's the world where I want to be in. You know, I want to be in a world where it's a little bit gonzo, it's a little bit sort of like homemade, but I think when you tell a good story and you tell it well, people, they, they can excuse anything, you know, like, yeah. uh, they can excuse a shitty camera. They can excuse, you know, like that it's shaky or because, because it's engaging, because the story is good. And at the end of the day, that's all we're doing, you know, and all we're doing is we're just telling stories. I mean, it's mad, right? Like when you think of the film and TV industry and what it's all become and, you know, what you're doing in festivals and Oscars and all this stuff, all of this only comes from a simple human compulsion to hear a story. It's mad, right? When you think of the, the industries that have sort of emerged from that, and the, the sort of shattered destinies, you know, like where it's just like, so it's just that. That's literally all it is. It's just, mm. we love to hear a bedtime story and we'll, we never will stop wanting to hear a new bedtime story. That's it's so interesting you say that because um, I, I read my niece, my five, five-year-old, four-year-old oh, yeah. four niece, bedtime stories. There's this amazing app. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's just like, it's genius. I'm going to get it. It's amazing. It's called um, Caribou. So she will call me through this app and okay. it's sort of an equivalent of like FaceTime, but right. we both have access to all these stories and she'll yeah. say, right, whatever the story she wants me to read. And then we can both see each page and the illustrations. And then I turn the page and I'm just reading it while she's in bed. It's, it's crazy. But my point being is that I was reading her story last night and I could, uh, you know, I, I was not, I did not have my fan hat on. I had my analyzing hat on. And I was thinking about the narrative arc of Barbie. Yeah. And <laughs> trying to make it this aspiring gymnast. And the story is there, but you can see the stories are ingrained. Yeah. yeah. For kids to understand like narrative structure from a really young age, subconsciously. Oh, yeah. Barbie, Barbie has an aspiration. Yeah. She's got to work really hard to get there. Yeah. She has someone who she's got these obstacles. She eventually overcomes these obstacles and Barbie wins. Barbie's the hero. Obviously that's not no, the case. No, every time. Twist. no twist in kids stories. There's no twist in kids stories, right? That's a very adult. No, there's no, I think it would just be a bit too much for them to grapple with yeah. potentially. Maybe I'm uh, underestimating memento, them. Uh, memento ending to, to Barbie. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for Barbie for Ken all along. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe there's a gap in the market for that. That's going to be a big thing. That's going to be the big thing. Um, but yeah, it was, um, it was really interesting. I just had a moment where I thought about that. And um, well, I that's, yeah, I mean, I also have a nephew and a niece, and I, I do read story. I mean, I read story to my nephew, not not remotely. I haven't started doing that. Pretty good idea. Um, but I did do it in, you know, in person, and it's it's such a great 
moment. It's like a great communion, you know, like telling a story to someone. It's because I don't know. It's it's just like it's there's something very essential, like uh, you know, with a capital E, like about it. It's like the essence of you're just recounting something and transmitting a message through images and metaphors. And I actually read reread The Little Prince to my nephew, um, maybe like last year or whatever. And uh, it was it was I hadn't read it in a long time. It's an uh, it's an amazing. Uh, uh, do you you know it right? Of course. Oh, you know this book, The Little Prince. Yeah, it's not. It's not the Machiavelli one, is it? No. No, it's like a Saint Exupéry. About the prince. No. Okay, anyway, I'm getting confused with another book. No, it's like a. Basically, it's it's a tale. I mean, it's it's a tale for children, but also for adults, and it's about this pilot that has an accident in the desert, and um, it's written by Saint Exupéry, Antoine de Saint Exupéry. He was a pilot himself, and he okay. actually died in the desert. Believe it or not, he had an accident, and he wrote the story about this guy that has an accident and that meets this sort of like magical kind of character, a little prince that comes from another planet. Basically, that's kind of it. Okay. And, uh, and it, it's a philosophical tale, right? And, uh, and I was reading that to my little nephew and, and I started crying. I started crying while reading, it was ridiculous. And he just fell asleep, like, you know, it was just like bored to death, I guess. Um, bored to sleep at least. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't believe like how, like just, just voicing, telling a story out loud. And when there's like a really strong message, like that particular story, um, it just really affects you emotionally. It's quite, uh, it's quite something. Yeah, 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 man. Maybe I'm um, just, maybe I'm just an emotional mess. It's one or the other. The producing is really starting to take its toll. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's when you. That's when you go stop. Then you know. Um, all right, man. Look, it's been great, great speaking to you. I'm going to finish on the question that I ask all the guests. Um, what does the idea of balance mean to you, or not? Well, I mean, we've talked, we've talked about that, right? I mean, yeah. we've, we've talked yeah. about it. I, there's, there's an interesting, like, uh, in French, balance, is, the word for balance is équilibre, uh, kind of like equilibrium, you know? And équilibre, like, if you, if you break down the word, is, is libre is the word for freedom, being free, right? And I think that's, like, a really interesting image about balance is, is that you're not doing anything too much, that it's, it's sort of like you're hostage to it you become free to just do a thing and stop doing it and, and another one and stop doing it. And it's, it's about feeling free to do whatever you want. Right. So I feel like that's, that's an interesting way to look at, at the balance. Um, it's about, yeah, retaining your sort of freedom of, yeah, of what you, what you want to do and how you feel like doing it. Great. That's a lovely answer. Thanks, man. Um, where can people find out more about you and your production company? Uh, we have a website, sweetdo.com S W E E T D O H. Um, and we've got a Vimeo page with um, our films start up there and some of the with corporates and, um, and little joke films that we've done with our, with our friends. Um, and yeah, watch the space, I guess. Great. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. No, thanks, Steve. It was great. Perfect. So there we have it. Thibaut Travers. Really enjoyed that conversation. I hope you guys did too. Hope you've had a good week. Feels like, does feel like when you go outside now, the lockdown thing is definitely starting to ease since that announcement came out from from Boris about being able to sunbathe and whatnot. I mean, my local park is rammed, but uh, it does feel like in some ways some things are, are getting back to normal, aren't they? I mean, you saw some of those images of people getting on the underground. For me, it hasn't really changed that much. I'm not, um, 
going very far. Furthest I go is on my weekly bike rides. Last Sunday, we went on a bike ride, my friend Steve and I, another Steve, call him Steve number two. I'm Steve number one. And uh, we say that to my my niece. We, we share a niece, Darcy. You know, I've, I've drilled it into her that I am Steve number one and he's Steve number two. It's a bit of comp- There's a bit of competitiveness going on there. Anyway, we go on a weekly bike ride and uh, they've been getting longer and longer, doing on average sort of 60 odd miles. And we went on one on Sunday past Epping Forest and I've got a road bike, he's got a mountain bike and the route that he'd chosen, he didn't realize this, but it took us off road and we went down this bumpy road in the middle of nowhere in the countryside and I got a puncture. So we had to walk a mile up the road with, with the bikes. I had to push mine up, get to our high street and uh, called loads of taxi companies because it was locked down. There wasn't very many open. Well, we got through to one eventually and then had to get an expensive taxi fare back to London. Uh, that was my big lesson to always bring out a uh, a spare tube with me. Although even if I had, I, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have known how to do it. I, I checked on YouTube. But the problem is I can't work out if it's the tire that's punctured or it's just the inner tube. So anyway, that's that's been my predicament for the week. I'm reading the book, Amy Pooler's. Amy Pooler's, I've said this before, I'm very difficult. I should just read, go on YouTube and then I know how to pronounce her name. It is Amy Pooler, isn't it? Polar. It's not, it's Amy Polar, isn't it? That sounds more likely. But anyway, either way, I'm reading her biography, Yes, Please. And uh, I'm really enjoying that. It's very, I'm near, I've, yeah, been reading that this week nearly finished it very enjoyable read and finished the last dance obviously we talked about that and now i'm watching dave the little dicky sitcom which at first i'm i'm going to admit it kind of it got me quite anxious because i've got a character called wisebaum and my radio four pilots about wisebaum trying to become the world's greatest urban poet and then i was like oh this is a sitcom about a white rapper trying to become the world's greatest rapper but there is tonally and everything else it is very it's different enough for me to be like okay this is like, i'm just going to enjoy this now i'm not gonna i'm not gonna watch this from a oh shit point of view i'm gonna like oh this is really fun and it's different enough for me not to lose sleep of it over it hopefully hopefully fingers crossed okay well thanks as always for listening and uh i will see you or you will hear from me on the next one have a good one Balancing Acts is now made in association with The Comedy Crowd, who are a website and community that support independent comedy creators such as myself. I have a Comedy Crowd short, which is a a two-minute video, one of my characters on their website. They showcase the best new videos on Comedy Crowd TV, which is comedycrowdtv.com, and across media platforms, so do go and check them out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. 
Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.